Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. Uh, in this episode, I am very happy and very excited to bring the conversation I had with the wonderful, uh, brilliant Ajar Yazdiha. Ajar is an assistant professor of sociology and faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute. She is also a CIFAR as really global scholar. She has her PhD in sociology from the University of North Carolina. It's a former Ford Foundation postdoc fellow, and she is someone that is looking at uh, much of the mechanisms underlying politics of inclusion, exclusion, um, intergroup relations, political culture, and many other topics. She is the author of the book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, We start by talking about how do we accurately understand Dr. King's message and legacy. We talk about how we reckon with different parts of of history, and particularly with the civil rights movement. We talk about a multicultural coalition. We talk about collective memory. We talk about how do we create culture. Uh, And we talk about if Dr. King's work is only for Black Americans, or how does it translate for for everybody and and the order of that, and many other topics. Uh, I have to say that I greatly enjoyed my conversation with her. She's um, very warm and conversational, and it really did feel like a conversation um, and less of a kind of an interview type of thing. And um, again, I think she's fantastic. I think she's she's very, very brilliant on many of these these topics. And um, I think she's got a great passion for for many of these these topics. And I'm I'm super, super happy to release that conversation and get people thinking and talking about uh, Dr. King's legacy and, and the accuracy of how we're you know, thinking about things. And and hopefully it, it, uh, it spurs that kind of uh, conversation. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergentdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. Uh, feel free to uh, subscribe and share with others that you feel might be interested. And uh, now I bring you a jar. Yes, you I'm here with Hajar Yasdiha. Uh, Haj, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm greatly looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You've uh, written a fabulous book called The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. And uh, it's it's very, very good. I greatly enjoyed reading it. So that's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, before we do, why don't you tell listeners uh who you are kind of uh you know what you do professionally academically and uh what you're what you're currently up to yeah so i am an assistant professor of sociology at the university of southern california and i consider myself a kind of expert in the politics of inclusion and exclusion especially since i've been doing a lot of research at the intersection of social movements and race and immigration and so so much of my work including the book that we're talking about today really takes up these kind of big questions about what it means to belong and the kind of world that we want to live in and then also how folks are trying to manifest these different visions of the the sort of future of our society so those are the kind of big questions I think about. Um, You know, the sort of more specific stuff about me is I am the child of Iranian immigrants. I grew up in a mostly white community in Northern Virginia, and I'm really kind of a 
you know, raised in the East Coast, very much um, embedded in public institutions in the South. So I went to the University of Virginia for undergrad, and then I got my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. And so you see a lot of that in my work, because I really do think about the kind of histories of the South and how they shape national culture. And it's also a lot of the animating work that has brought me to where I am today. Oh, that's, that's that's very wonderful. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the East Coast is the best coast. So, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm just joking. The West Coast is wonderful. So it's got better weather over there. Um, but uh, that's really, really great that you have kind of this uh, really eclectic mix personally and then kind of professionally and, you know, kind of at the very least is informing, you know, many ways in which you're thinking about various issues. I think that's that's always super important. So people don't get too too isolated and uh in in one kind of space so it's, it's i think that's uh i would imagine that's a that's a big positive yeah and you know i think a lot of times we talk about our research without talking about the kind of context for it you know like what brought us to the project why we started thinking about these research questions to begin with mm-hmm. and there is that kind of stigma of doing quote unquote me search but i think it's such a missed opportunity because the way that our personal history shapes the way we're approaching these questions the interests that we have in them mm-hmm. is such an important part of understanding why it matters and also how we're thinking about the analysis right like what is our sort of ultimate goal in doing this work and i know for me you know being the child of not just iranian immigrants but really hardcore political activists who ended mm-hmm. up in the mm-hmm. states as political refugees mm-hmm. that is is a kind of defining piece for me. Like that is the kind of interest that drew me to the study of social movements and specifically social movements in the United States, which in our case are really rooted in the history of black struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think uh, definitely the personal component is always good. And I think if people recognize that and understand that, then they can kind of like, yeah, acknowledge this and then either use it or, you know, kind of sometimes put it on the, on the shelf and pick it up when they need to. And I think there's, I mean, it's always informing us, but I think it's good to kind of really have a, a nice way of maneuvering around that and using it. So I think that's, that's great. Absolutely. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about, so the big thing I want to talk to you about is a a big central uh, theme in the book early on about collective memory. So before we get to that, um, maybe we can just kind of set the stage a bit and you can just tell me uh, and tell listeners about how there's this, mm, uh, there's this way in which people will use the legacy of MLK uh, Jr. now, uh, Dr. King, and they'll use it in a way that is uh, sometimes, I guess, for their own interest, you know, for good or for bad. And so h- how much or how important do you think is it to kind of understand the true intentions, as best we can know them, of his message and his 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 legacy? And how do we uh, you know, push back against you know, others who maybe try to put their own agendas into it and just kind of use him as like a, a face for it, maybe inappropriately. So how, how do you, how do we understand this way of understanding his legacy and, and who gets to kind of talk about it and, and all the kind of uh, messy, complicated things with that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the big questions that even brought me to this work because he is such a kind of central figure. Like he gets associated with put in the same sentence as Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Mm -hmm. And there's this way he's been mythologized as kind of one of the founding fathers of the post-civil rights era, of the contemporary era. And even thinking about my childhood growing up in Northern Virginia and, you know, the kind of education you received in history, which is always kind of 
incredibly limited if we're being real, but always ended with this final chapter, which was MLK. And I remember sitting there and watching his I Have a Dream speech, which I think must have been edited because if you actually listen to the full speech, it's so much more complex and rich than the pieces that get drawn out, you know, in mainstream media. And that's the piece that you learn and you hear his dream of this world where his, his children are living in a colorblind society. And I think a lot about how specifically that quote has been co-opted in so many dangerous ways. Mm. So you're absolutely right that there is this really prolific way of talking about his legacy and using it as if it is really everyone's domain. This is American history, not just Black history. So there is that question of really understanding the true intentions of his work and his words and how important that is. And for me, it's not just about the ideal, which is that we go back and really actively read his original texts and read his original speeches, especially if you read, for example, his letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that is one of the most enlightening pieces that helps you understand where he was mentally, how his thought had maybe evolved during the civil rights movement. And specifically that it really runs counter to the popular conception that, you know, he was this loving guy who really believed in nonviolent at all costs, nonviolence at all costs, you know, who really was devoted to peace, really was committed to working with everybody. Everybody loved him. So, you know, it really debunks a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's also about studying the context that he was operating in. So it's not just about studying the man as if he was this kind of exceptional great man but rather as somebody who was the product of a moment and of a larger movement, a movement that had a lot of other unsung heroes. And then the key piece, which I think is really the theory of the book and the takeaway, which is understanding how these legacies get made and the politics that shape them. So not just understanding the actual true histories of Dr. King and the civil rights movement, but also understanding why they were co-opted, how they were co-opted, how he became this strategic political strategy for advancing right-wing causes. Um, You know, there's this part in the book where I I talk about how his wife, a civil rights activist in her own right, Coretta Scott King, it was the evening before the 1980 presidential election, and she's confessing her fear of Reagan getting nominated or not getting nominated, getting elected. And so she says, I'm scared that if Ronald Reagan gets into office, we're going to see more of the KKK and a resurgence of the Nazi party. And when I read that, I I felt this chill because as we know, right, Reagan becomes president and he becomes linked to the King legacy because he's the one who signs the King holiday into law Mm -hmm. and really proclaims it as, you know, one of the defining pieces of his administration. He's the guy that really establishes the post-civil rights era. And as they show in the book, you know, he is the one that actually sanitizes, whitewashes it, and ensures all of his right-wing allies that we're going to be remembering a very individualist version of Dr. King, who was committed to the neoliberal free market, who was really committed to pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, and this sort of notion of colorblindness where we're going to treat racism as a figment of the past. It's done now. We've we've done it. We don't have to deal with it anymore. And that's the legacy that I really want to draw out here, is the legacy of how King gets remembered and co-opted. Mm, yeah, I, that, that's, I, I like the way you uh, you frame that. I, I, it's a, it's a thing that I, as I was reading the book and thinking about it afterwards, I kept kind of trying to 
find where 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 I kind of land on it because obviously I think everything you're saying is right that people will uh, co-opt his 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 message or his legacy for whatever they want even if they don't care about you know the intention or the, who the audience was or what what were some of the original kinds of uh, ways in which this was intended to be used so I think there's a I think there's maybe two questions here um, and I guess one is how do we understand i guess historically right um i know that's not i guess specifically what you're doing but like how do we how do we understand historically like yes who he was as a person what he did in you know the 50s and the 60s um but then there's uh past that the legacy right and so maybe those two things are obviously linked but also different uh, that's how i'm kind of seeing this i guess just about that, how do we understand kind of like, yes, this and this and this happened. Yes, we should have more robust kind of telling of that story, right? It's not, you know, most people, they, you know, they'll, they'll hear about MLK and, uh, you know, third Monday in January and, you know, maybe in February and then that's it. And we'll hear, I have a dream speech, maybe a few other things, but that's really it. And which is a shame and, and it shouldn't be that way. So, but I guess as we keep moving further away from the civil rights era, right? Uh, and that's becoming further and further and further. There is, a, I guess, a more salient question here of, of legacy and the kind of uh, ripple effects that that has for, for all Americans, and I would imagine also specifically for Black Americans. So, yeah, how do you, I guess, see that divide, if at all, if you see it as a divide between, yep, this happened, or here's these perspectives historically, of you know, or here's other things we should know, and then outside of that, of okay, what? Well, how does those things impact the legacy, especially as we're getting to, you know, seventy and then eighty and a hundred years later from that? Okay, what is that kind of? How does that evolve or change? So, what, how do you think of this? Yeah, no, that's a complicated question. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> you know, I think okay. So let me break it down because I think a big piece of it for me is coming at it through a sociological perspective as opposed to a historical one, and so it's one that you know, it's really deferent to the real historians that have been digging in and talking about this work for, you know, decades and have been drawing out and really calling out all of these misuses. And one of the things I say in the book, and I say every time I talk about it, is that I'm not the first one who's noticed that Dr. King's been co-opted. I mean, this is something folks have been talking about, like I said, for decades, including historians and activists civil rights leaders, you know, even King's own children, Bernice King, for example, who leads the King Center now, she's always talking about how these are not things that her father would have believed in, how she doesn't believe in the way that his words are being co-opted. If you look at his you know, original words, this is not what he meant. They've been taken out of context. So I think the important thing for me is, first of all, we could think sort of more realistically about what true historical education even looks like. We already know that the state of historical education in the United States has always been fraught. We, mm -hmm. All we have to do is look at the histories of enslavement, you know, the histories of uh, settler colonialism and how those have been whitewashed, sanitized, completely distorted. So it, there is that one piece where, of course, we should go back and be studying these true histories. This should be an active practice. We should be resisting a politics like the one we're seeing in Florida that, you know, really not just revises, but completely distorts and lies about the past. Mm -hmm. Then I think the other piece, the sociological piece that's so critical for me 
is thinking about what the larger political project is. So where we're thinking not just about history as its own important artifact on its own, but also thinking about why it holds so much power for our society, why that story of the past is so critical for controlling the future, and then how it is that those in power have created a culture of ignorance where we collectively don't know what really happened in the past, and therefore we don't have to deal with the inequality that exists in the present. And I think that's the, as a race scholar, that's the piece that I find most concerning is that it's not just about the lack of education. It's about the fact that the distortion of the past has been used in the service of creating this culture of ignorance. And it's a culture of willful ignorance, right? It's a, it's a form of violence. And we think about how our collective memories are so critical because they hold power for either justifying or challenging the way that we continue to go about the business of being a society. And so if we don't have a shared story of the past, if we can't even agree on what actually has happened and how it shapes who we are, then we don't have to deal with the messiness of racial inequality and why it exists. Mm. So, you know, one of the things I really draw out because it does have these consequences for multicultural democracy is we have to confront the past if we want democracy to last. So yeah, I totally I totally agree. I think that uh, I think I think you're right that it's it's definitely narratives that we construct, and we obviously have a mm, I guess for lack of a better word a, a kind of traditional narrative. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying that that's all wrong or you know that you know it's uh, it's all right or anything like that. But there's a kind of you know what you learn in you know elementary and middle school and high school and stuff like that, and it's always you know a. a it's always a snapshot, right? It's never, it's never exhaustive. Um, but even with that, though, I think there's so much that's <laughs> at a disservice there. And I think, you know, a lot of this stuff can be stuff that people are taught from, you know, it's just super, super antiquated, you know, textbooks that were written, you know, in the 40s, or, you know, things that are really, really, you know, outdated, or they just kind of, they get a little bit of a new polish. But, and I do think that there's a, a an importance of, Right, reckoning with history by telling it from different perspectives that we haven't heard for so many years because of, you know, either racist elements or or many other elements. So I, I totally agree with you on that. I guess again, before collective memory, because I, I know we're 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 we're, we're, pu we're pushing on that, uh, so I don't want to delay it. But I, I, there's this element of, um, you know, Dr. King had this idea of a multicultural coalition. Uh, racially and for economic equality and things like that. And I guess I don't, I mean, I'm curious for your thoughts. I don't really have an opinion on this necessarily, but I don't, I, I, I'm I'm curious both on, on the accuracy of what, he, you know, he was mm, as best we can know intending. And then again, with the legacy piece, you know, you talked about like, there's this co-opt kind of thing of like, you know, you know, right-wing or conservative groups, you know, white groups that are kind of just using him to kind of, you know, get away with some pretty horrible things or, you know, using it for whatever their causes are, you know, to kind of just say, look, see, we can pull from this too. But I don't think Dr. King was exclusionary for white folks. In fact, as far as I know, there was, you know, white folks that were, you know, allies during the civil rights movement, et cetera. And I don't want to make this about <laughs> white Americans necessarily, but I guess where, you know, because, because it does get co-opted, in one way, and I think most people can agree that you know that's not that's not accurate, that's not right. And then it's another way of like, well, you know, 
well, how, how, how is it in where we don't want to exclude anybody in, in, I think in the country, but how do we say, Hey, listen, this is where this seems to fit. Or this is where, when we talk about a multicultural coalition, what does that look like? I guess in modern times, understanding his legacy of all groups, including white people, you know, kind of fit together. What is your idea, I guess, sociologically of, of what that would look like or look like in a, you know, in a more equal way of sorts? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think there are a couple different parts, right? So one piece is about the the question of like, where do white people fit in? And I mean, I would argue that white people have been represented probably disproportionately in these sort of common conceptions of the civil rights movement in the sense that, you know, when, when you see these sort of mainstream whitewashed collective memories of the civil rights movement. I think about the movies that I watched growing up, even the more recent ones, you know, like Green Book or The Help, white people are central. So you see these images of good white people, you see them Mm -hmm. standing Mm -hmm. side by side with black people, taking a prominent role, using their power for good to take on the mean racists. Mm -hmm. And it's always been this way that, you know, Good white people can draw this clean line around the evil racists as these Southern men with hoods, as these kind of relics of the past. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to evade responsibility. It's a way to, you know, reproduce this conception of racism as a thing that's existent at the individual level that exists Mm -hmm. in your heart and your mind, and also to situate it in the past. And I think that's where the danger lies. So, I mean, that's one piece of it, because I think you're right, though, that on the other hand, we have these more complex histories that we could be drawing on, where we actually think about what white white allyship looked like during the civil rights movement. And for me, you know, as a professor who teaches classes on social movements, I love to teach with the documentary film, The Freedom Riders. Mm-hmm. And it's always so eye-opening for my undergrads who have grown up not just with, you know, these totally sanitized and simplistic versions of the civil rights movement in their history textbooks, but also with that kind of historical remove where they're even further away from the actual civil rights movement, you know, than I was growing up in the 80s. So for them, you know, they see these young white people that are their age and who are taking on these unbelievable risks, who are literally taking a back seat. They are sitting and they're listening. And it's not performative. It's not about, you know, posting something on Twitter or showing on Instagram that you were at a protest. It's about this true deeper allyship that requires listening and sacrifice, you know, that doesn't expect accolades and applause and a happy ending. And there's always such a rich conversation after I show that documentary, because I think it's a version of resistance. It's a version of interracial solidarity, of, um, you know, true solidarity and allyship that goes so much deeper than the, the forms that we see today. And so I think there is, you know, there is a space where White people would not necessarily be centered, but a space where we can draw out what white and multiracial allyship could actually look like, where it doesn't center the group and expect them to to sort of be celebrated for showing up, where it's really about them understanding that linked fate means that they're in it too, and that there are stakes for them too. So I think I think that's a that's one way that I've been thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, I do like that. I think that there's, I think there has to be less of like a kind of signaling of sorts, 
about you know obviously we we see the the horrible versions of this with with some white folks and that but i think there's a you know i think maybe unintentionally maybe sometimes just really subliminally like you know kind of in the other direction where it's very like you're saying very centered you know look at me look what i'm doing look at how you know i'm doing this i'm doing that i'm doing the work and all this stuff and i and i just think i mean i guess some of that's okay but i think if it's I think if you're sincere about it, you're you're treating people as people and you're being able to recognize that culturally, you know, you know, black folks have a different history and they have a different culture, et cetera, et cetera, that you can listen and you don't have to, you know, be any one way about it. I think you can just accept that, yeah, these these things are realities and, you know, I can listen to how these things are and, and how can I, you know, be a good person for you. Uh understanding and considering those things and less of you know what uh what rally was i at this weekend again it's not to say there's anything wrong with rallies per se but i think it's more of a uh you know how you're how you're interpersonally acting with people uh in public or in private um i think is important where there's a an under a, an attempted understanding you know at least an attempt to listen and it doesn't have to be uh overcompensating for something or denying and resisting everything either i think that's kind of my <laughs> it's kind of my yeah. middle middle way kind of thing of, of, of how i see it yes and i think one of the greatest challenges really is sitting in discomfort i think it, it's one of the roadblocks that i come across the most in the classroom especially with students who believe that they are so progressive that they're already enlightened that they know all there is to know. I think they're some of the hardest students to reach because they don't realize that it is an ongoing process. I'm still learning, right? Like I have been doing this work for a long time. I have had a lot of experiences as a non-white immigrant in this country, and I still have so much more work to do, right? So it's a, it's a constant process. And I think one of the main things that came out is like Black people have known forever that social progress is not linear. You cannot expect it to constantly be you know, successes and, and and like, it's up from here, right? And I think that is a struggle for groups that expect quick success, that expect, you know, some sort of feedback within their lifetime that tells them that they did this for something. And of course, that's, you know, we all want that. But I think to understand the persistence it requires and the capacity to be uncomfortable, to be disappointed, and to keep going, that's the real challenge. Mm. Yeah. When I, when I've talked to, you know, either, you know, students or, or friends or other, other folks in the black community, a lot of the things I hear is, look, I don't, I don't need you to to do anything. I just need you to just, you know, listen and accept, you know, my realities and my experience and, and not <laughs> resist it or, or try to diminish it or try to minimize it. And, you know, just treat me like you would anybody else. That's what I really want at the very least. Um, yes. That's what I hear. I often enough. And I think in both ways, if it's, you know, overcompensating or, or significantly minimizing, um, that's more irritating, uh, at the very least than, than not. Um, okay. So let's talk about collective memory. So, so define this for us. What is this? And tell us a little bit about this interplay between individual group and collective memories, um, that are kind of functioning against this kind of backdrop of institutions. Yeah. So, I mean, collective memory is so central to the theoretical framework. I'm glad we're talking about what it is exactly. It is different from his history and historical practices. 
So collective memory is this socially constructed story about the past, and it emerges through this set of political and cultural practices, which means that it's dynamic, right? So it's not just one static thing that exists over time and gets institutionalized. It is always under contention. It's always under debate. And especially the collective memories that are central to national identity end up being really fraught because these are the stories that tell groups who they are. So for example, American collective memories constitute, you know, how we think about our collective national identity, and they really shape the boundaries between this imagined us as Americans, and then this imagined them as essentially everyone else. And so again, you know, the more central that a collective memory is for our national identity, the more power it holds which means that it also becomes more vulnerable to getting co-opted and misappropriated because it's really like this valuable cultural resource. And so everyone is clamoring to control it and to have some sort of say in what it is. And so I think it's really important to think about how collective memory shapes individual memory because when we think about individual memory, we often think about it as this thing that just lives in our minds. It is shaped individually. All of our individual memories are different. But if you actually look at the sociological research and even social psychological research, there is a really strong case to be made that our individual memories are actually nested. So they're nested in group memories, and those are the memories of the groups with which we identify, whether they are racial or ethnic groups, maybe they're class-based, they may even be place-based, you know, for example, what it means to grow up in Atlanta versus Los Angeles. And then those group memories are embedded in collective memories. So how we understand our group memory is shaped by that national collective memory. And so the way that those three levels get intertwined ends up mattering a lot for the way that a collective memory may vary between people who lived at the exact same time and experienced the exact same thing. They may not share the same individual memory because it's embedded in different social positionalities and, and different sort of proximity to the actual event and the way that the event was experienced. Okay, a few things here. So that was, that's very helpful. So I guess the first thing I, I want to ask is, so we know individual memories are... Uh, how do I say it? Individual memories are very, very unreliable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very suspect, right? And this is why we don't rely on um, as much anymore on um, fact witnesses because they will, in a legal context, because, you know, yeah, I saw the guy and he robbed the store or whatever, but it's like, you know, then when you like push down on it, people can't remember. Then they start misremembering things and they have all of these priors and then they have all of these heuristics they're using and it, it's a, it's a mess. It's a, it's a big mess. And you know, when the stakes are high on when you're, you know, criminally charging somebody, it's a big, it's a big deal. And there's problems with expert witness too, but either way, memories, individual memories are unreliable. It's not surprising that the uh, sociologist is is talking about groups. So that's, <laughs> it's very, it's very funny that you're, you're talking about groups, which I think is totally fair. It's also interesting too, because I think, Yes, I mean, I think maybe I think maybe it's different for everybody, but groups tend to, um, like for example, you and I could be in one group together. Let's say it's geographical. Let's say, mm -hmm. 
and we're from the same region or whatever, but we're going to have totally different ways of thinking about it. There might be overlap of certain things like, yeah, you remember, you remember in, in 2010, we had this really big snow, right? And we had this whole thing. And like, you remember how it was really hard? Like we can have like some kind of like overlap there. Uh, maybe it's not the best example, but I think <laughs> with groups, there are some things there, but I think there's a lot of disparity for, for, for individuals. And I would imagine that would bleed out in terms of memories, bleed out into like how a group can remember things. Although there's also that other thing of like, well, how many people have this kind of group thing where it's like, yeah, they don't really remember, but everyone else is saying they remember that thing. So yeah, I remember that thing. So I wonder that piece of it too. But then both of those, I guess, uh, you know, shortcomings of, of individual and group memories, you have this idea of collective memory, which I see tied up with the, this creation of, of culture, which has to do with a type of either uh, patriotism or healthy nationalism, if you want. I know those are sort of loaded words, but but before I, I guess I come to that, how, how do you see some of these shortcomings of individual or group memories for, for, for people? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like the question of collective memory in the sense that it's always contentious. It's not like there's sort of one defining story of the past that everybody shares. But I think part of it is also about how it gets institutionalized and then also how it gets passed down. And so individual memory, you could say, you know, you live with it, you die with it. At the same time, though, there is the relational piece where for most people, at least, they will have shared their memories with somebody over time. And the memories may have evolved through conversations. We already have these really rich accounts of how even being introduced to a new cultural lens, a new way of making sense of your own experience can actually shift the way that you remember it. It can shift the way that you feel about it. I mean, for example, in one of my projects, I studied Muslim Americans and how they were resisting community policing for counterterrorism. And I did these focus groups. And so there were folks in the room who had experienced things like 9-11 and counterterrorism policies, the surveillance. They'd all experienced those same things, but they were remembering them in really different ways. And even in the course of those conversations within that room of just five to six people, I had these really powerful accounts where somebody was remembering an experience that had felt really scary where FBI came to their house and they had asked them a lot of really intrusive questions and they didn't know what was happening. And then in the course of the conversation, hearing other folks reflect on something similar, but from a different positionality, for example, an immigrant hearing from a second generation Muslim who was in law school, talking about how it was an infringement on their civil liberties, how it was unjust all of a sudden it shifted the way that they remembered it. And suddenly they were angry. So they were thinking suddenly about how in that moment when they were so terrified and felt so powerless, they'd actually been having their rights infringed on, how it was not fair that this had happened to them. And so even that kind of evolution of memory shows just how the, the collective can come in and the group can come in when you're thinking about an individual memory. And so, yes, memory can be very unreliable, but especially when it comes to the group and especially up to the collective level, it does get institutionalized in these community accounts, in group histories that are passed down through generations, through communities, you know, churches and mosques, synagogues, and then also in, you know, in the texts, right? The, the group work that comes out in fiction and nonfiction and history books, collective memory gets institutionalized in much 
more sort of concrete ways when you think about national holidays and textbooks and media representations. So it becomes much more entrenched in culture in a way that individual memories maybe don't. But all of those three levels definitely have a kind of feedback process where the collective relies on the individual because the individual has to legitimize it. If you have enough individuals saying, this is not my collective memory, this is not how I remember it, then it's going to fall flat, right? There's going to be a resistance that ultimately shifts the way that the collective memory is shaped. Mm. Yeah, that's, 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 that's uh, I think, important in understanding how collective memory is shaped. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering here if sometimes if... Again, I, I want to ask about institutions in a minute, but I guess there's this idea of like, I think sometimes people resist when things try to change too fast, even if they're supposed to, or they should, or it's long overdue, because of, there might be a collective memory, but it doesn't mean that it's completely accurate, right? So I think of like, when people, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, more recently uh, you know, books that come out that are telling uh, kind of the same, not same, but a similar timeline of history, but looking at it from a more uh, inclusive approach, meaning they're talking about, um, you know, what was, what were Native Americans experienced during, you know, X, Y, and Z period. And we don't really get that history. And because, you know, we, it, you know, people wouldn't publish that history or it wasn't interest for it, or they'll look at, you know, what were, different stories from black Americans at this point during World War II. We always get the kind of like, you know, you know, stereotypical, you know, go off to war and you come back and here's all these other things. And like, that's fine. But like, also like, well, what about these, um, you know, other, other groups that are here in the States, whether they're natives or they're black Americans or immigrants or whatever. And, oh, okay. Now having that kind of, changes how I, I i thought about that history not necessarily in a bad or a good way just there's more facts to consider and i wonder if sometimes um people resist that because it's like well you're you're telling me something different now from how i remember this like well i was raised with this story like my grandparents told me this and i learned this in school and like i wonder if sometimes it certainly sometimes people resist things because you know, there's maybe, you know, implicit or explicit racial uh, uh, sentiments. But sometimes I wonder if it's like, well, this is just going to take me a minute to kind of like get this because it's not what I thought. And it's like, okay, like you're totally because people have this like, if it's a memory and if it's a memory about their, you know, heritage or culture or their, you know, how they grew up or whatever. I wonder if some of that resistance comes from like, oh, this is just kind of new and kind of a shock and I have to reconstruct how I think about kind of basics. Do you think that's at play or or is that just like a kind of another safe way of like trying to dismiss something because, you know, they don't want to hear that history or something? How, how do you how do you see that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think on a kind of interpersonal level. That, that, that's definitely a play. Like you think about any sort of challenge to your own conception of reality and there's going to be resistance. There's going to be a pause. You're not going to just sort of automatically accept it and say like, okay, cool. Then I guess everything I ever believed is false, you know? So that's always going to be true. I think what's challenging is that in the case of the US, in the case of national collective memories that are fraught with, you know, if you think about the way that history is used in the service of power, 
there's always a material aspect to it. So collective memory is rooted in the service of upholding in the United States a system of power that privileges white power, that privileges white status. And that piece is very uncomfortable. And I think when you think about the deep heterogeneity of the American public and the fact that this country was built on the backs of Black people, then it's a lot easier to understand the resistance to, for example, the 1619 Project or to understanding Dr. King as actually quite radical, as somebody who had a lot of qualms with capitalism, who was calling out American imperialism and foreign policy. That, I think, is a story of how it's not just about resistance to your own conception of reality. It's about resistance to a perceived loss of status and power. And that is a really tough pill to swallow. And I say that as, again, a non-white immigrant who grew up feeling like I had experienced discrimination and therefore I got it. So even for me, coming to understand that I myself, somebody who felt so small and like such an outsider for so much of my life, that I myself had experienced a lot of privilege by being ethnically ambiguous, by having a lot of proximity to whiteness and like by extension, the power of whiteness, the resources and access that came with being surrounded by white people who knew me, that was so hard for me to accept. But I think that's really where, you know, understanding the political work that collective memory does becomes so important because then it's not just about the story of the past. It's about understanding the work that it's doing right now in the present. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think people... I think there's a resistance there because I think people initially will say like, well, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't want it to be that way, or I, I'm, I didn't, I didn't make it that way. But I think it is hard for some people to be like, sure, but you take advantage of, of it, or, or the fact that other people uh, do have a different experience. I think it's sometimes I think some people read it as like I'm blaming you, yes. and maybe some people do that. But I think that it's more like no, no, no. It's not necessarily about that. It's just understanding that. Um, there this is a, an aspect of it and because people take advantage it doesn't mean that you're to blame or you're at fault but i think there's just a, a recognition of it i also think that there's another thing here which is kind of this question of like how do we this is how, how do we create culture uh mm-hmm. which is a really hard thing to uh really pin down many philosophers have, have written about this but um with this collective memory idea i think it's this idea I don't know. I mean, I I definitely have seen um, extremes on on a lot of sides of this, but I feel like sometimes when people say some of the obvious things about institutions or about our various points of our history, people feel that it's we're slandering and we're talking down about our country and we don't respect or love our country and things like that. And I and look, look, I mean, I think there. <laughs> There's some pretty radical activists out there. I mean, it is kind of that way. I mean, there, but I also think that for a lot, for most people, it's no, it's not necessarily that way. But we have to, if we want to improve and get better, we have to acknowledge how a lot of these uh, systems were created at the time they were created and what these institutions were doing and who they were for. And, and I think some people will say, yes, let's get rid of all of it. Uh, and start new. And some people will say, yeah, let's significantly reform this because how do we, how do we have 
you know, maybe the skeleton of this idea, but how do we do it where women and black folks and immigrants and Latin folks and natives and Asians are all kind of considered? Whereas before it wasn't considered that because, you know, that wasn't the time or, the, you know, you didn't have to or there was other more pernicious things going on. And I think that's just a very nuanced, complicated conversation that people have a hard time dealing with. So some of those that backdrop of institutions is there. But then that also makes it really difficult, I think, for this idea of how do we how do we create culture? So how, how do you how do, how do you usually navigate through some of those components? Yeah, they're really complicated. And the complexity is the piece that's so sociological because everybody always laughs that as a sociologist, my response to everything is it's complex, right? but right, it yeah. is right. I'm not an economist. I'm not going to give you a causal <laughs> argument. Sorry, economists, but I'm not going to give you a causal argument that just, you mm-hmm. know, simplifies it down to a couple of variables because it is so historically specific, but then there are also these larger patterns that help us think about how this scales up across places and societies and even time. So I think there are a couple of parts to your question. And one of them getting back to the the kind of resistance piece, the piece where folks feel blamed, is the piece where it is so important to receive a critical education that helps you understand how to build your sociological imagination. And I'm just plugging sociology here for all your listeners. I'm like, everybody can benefit because, you know, I say this on day one in my sociology classes, and I tell them about how they are going to read things that do not mesh with their personal experience. They are going to engage in conversations that make them feel defensive, potentially angry, potentially hurt. And all of those feelings are normal because when we're confronted with evidence that runs counter to our personal experience, that is a very normal way to react. Mm -hmm. And I always draw in this concept. It's from social psychology. And it's called the just world hypothesis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you've heard of it, and Mm -hmm. I think it's just so helpful because especially for those in power, it helps you think about why that resistance is happening. It's the idea that, you know, you want everything to make sense. So when bad things happen, you want to be able to explain it away as a product of individual failings. And we do it to ourselves too. So it's not just that, you know, we blame poor people for being poor or, you know, we blame rape victims for getting raped. It's that we also blame ourselves when bad things happen to us, you know, oh, you know, I failed that test because I didn't study enough. And it's not about shirking blame, right? It's not about saying that we're not responsible for anything, but it is about understanding the systems that shape the situations and the the circumstances that we find ourselves in and the way that we behave within those, those instances. And so I think the misconception is that sociologists are just turning everyone into victims and, you know, making us all feel like we have no agency because it's all about the structures that control us. Mm. On the contrary, I show, you know, I talk about this all the time. I'm like, if you have the sociological imagination, it is a lifeline because it shows you that your individual experiences are always connected to something larger than you as an individual. Mm. And so it is a kind of collectivist way of thinking about the world, but when you realize that you are interconnected with other human beings, you realize you're not alone, first of all. Second of all, you realize that you have agency. You can make choices that may, over time, actually shift something, even if it feels very small. And then I think the third piece is that you realize that when somebody presents you with something that feels uncomfortable, like, for example, the con- concept of systemic racism or you know a collective memory that 
feels really messy and kind of negative, that that's actually an opportunity to think about your own place within that system, to realize that maybe something deeper is going on and that you could actually resist it. Like you don't have to just be complicit and accept it. And I think especially discussions of racism end up being, you know, really uncomfortable because of that, because it is so easy for really like good hearted people. I really believe most people are good hearted and have good intentions. It is really hard for them to want to hear that simply by doing nothing at all, just by existing and, you know, being nice to the cashier by, you know, going to church, that that could be its own form of racism. That's really uncomfortable. But I think that's actually where understanding the larger system can be kind of freeing because you realize, hey, this actually exists in spite of me and the choices that I make can be perpetuating it without my knowledge. So let's educate ourselves. Let's understand how we can actually make moves to try to dismantle it. Well, and I think the thing that you're pointing at, which is something I agree with, is that I think if you look at, yes, your agency and responsibility and choice and where you fit, whether you like it or not, within a, within a collective or a system or whatever, um, that it's just complicated because people are complicated. And so it's one of those things where it's like, I, I usually resist if people try to flatten anybody into these one-dimensional kinds of things or they put them in discrete categories. I, I find that not very useful and, and usually pretty elementary. I think, yes, in some ways things are kind of not overly complicated, but typically, yes, I think we're complicated humans and we have, you know, if you take it to individual level, wants, desires, feelings, thoughts that are contradictory within ourselves. So then you scale that with, you know, a bunch of other people running around in the country with all these other histories and ideas and all this stuff. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot. Yes. But I think, I think that there's a lot of beauty in that as well. Um, but I think it's just, I think some of the things you were saying in there, is is the ask it's not that people can't do it but i think it's just very hard for people which is <laughs> how do people not be too too emotive they act on their reactions they not resist things you mean you know you're asking people to pause and actually think about why am i resisting this and be introspective and like that's really hard for a lot of people to, <laughs> to do um they can do it but i think it's it's hard especially if you're not used to doing it and um i think i think that's a that's that's a that's one piece. I don't think it's the only piece, but uh, I think obviously there's a lot of fear and uncertainty, and that's a very powerful animating uh, emotion for people. Where it's like, nope, I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to do it. I don't want it to change anything because then that's going to reconstruct everything, and and that's hard. That's really hard for people. But I think people can do it. Um, I just think it's it's a big challenge for for many folks. Yeah, so and I think yeah, like I mean, sorry, I just, go ahead, go ahead. like I just have to keep going on this point because it's such a good one. Um, you know, obviously, one of the things I talk about in the book is that the the perception of the threat of multicultural democracy for white people, especially you know, right wing conservative white people, is not random. It is a political project that has been built over time. And when you actually look at it, I mean, the fact that I, you know, I trace these misuses of Dr. King and civil rights memory from 1980 to 2020, and it's so clear how you end up with something like great replacement theory. You know, this idea that mm -hmm. white people have are experiencing this existential threat because of black and brown Americans. It's not just a sort of natural product of demographic change. Like this is a political project by elites in power 
who are really committed to keeping us apart. And I, I look to the work of somebody like Jonathan Metzl, who wrote, you know, Dying of Whiteness. And it's such a powerful account. And it's the best of sociology, which really shows you that white supremacy is hurting white people too. So I think when you take that lens, where you know, even if you want to take a kind of instrumental approach and think about how people should care because it affects them too, not just because it's the right thing. I mean, even through that lens, I'm like, it is in everybody's best interest to be actively anti-racist and do the work because this is really killing everybody. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, there's definitely impact that will will have for everybody, right, on one way or the other. And it's not always a good impact, right? And it's a negative impact. And so I think it's, again, I think people have to, as, as it is in, in my world, right? I'd look at the individual of, of like individuals, uh, you know, their their emotions and their behaviors and things like that. And so it's one of those things where it's like, how does each individual person uh, be mindful of their place in the society, in a group, in a collective. But how do you're making your decisions based on how you're, you know, using you know, being more introspective, more understanding, um, and being able to regulate yourself and choose your behaviors well. And that's just that's a very very hard thing to do. Yes, and you know what you're saying has me thinking about. I actually feel like this is a whole separate conversation we should have, but it has me thinking about how raising young children has made me think so much about how, you know, the tools of respectful parenting are so valuable actually for thinking about these larger questions of how to connect across group differences, connect across really deep divides and how we understand social reality because it's like the the sort of core social emotional intelligence required to engage in these conversations in a meaningful way is not something most of us are raised with. So that's like its own individual level psychological practice that a lot of us could use. Yeah, 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 I think so. You know, I'll be honest though. I think that for a lot of kids, you know, they they you know, they're kind of teaching us how to do that, right? Cuz you know, more yes. more kids of the young generation are multi-ethnic and biracial and all these things and and that's just kind of more normal for them in some ways. Um, but I yes. do think you're right that um there is a kind of uh a certain ethos that should be kind of uh permeated there. But I think each generation might get a little bit better at it, but I think with each generation, something that we also have to, I think, be uh, humble about is with a lot of mixture of things, um, even within one person or within you know groups or in schools, there's just going to be new issues, new challenges, and it's like, well, I don't know what that's like. That wasn't true for me when I was in school. I don't, I don't know. And there's a lot of positive to it, um, but I think there's also challenges that are like, hmm, that's new. Uh, what can how do we how do we figure this out? How do we continue to learn and, and grow and uh, from experience and and from younger generations? And so, but I think you're right. I think it's how do you have a a, a parenting uh, you know heuristic of sorts of of trying to to appropriately um, create a space for for children or for one's children uh, to to explore that and to to do that in a way that's um, you know, I think healthy for, for their relationships. I think that's, that's a, I think that's the question to ask, of course. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I want to ask one quick question here. Uh, it, it might be a bigger one, but just, you can just give me the the kind of brief version of it. One thing I was, I was thinking about throughout the book, and, and I'm not sure what the answer is here. So is I always see Dr. King's message and work as most proximate for black Americans. 
uh, his work is for the black community first and foremost. And almost that if people, and this is kind of that legacy question, I, I'm going to think that any, any, if people want to adopt tenets of his message to their own community, whether it's, you know, you name it, you know, immigrants or, uh, you know, Asian Americans or, you know, for LGBTQ or whatever, that I think that understanding that kind of context within the black American uh, community or, or w- what it was initially for how, how it was, you know, done in the, in during civil rights. And so I, I don't know. I don't. I don't have really a, a position on this. That's just kind of my priors. That it's like, well, it's it's for Black Americans first, and anything we we want to apply in this kind of collective kind of memory thing has to be almost like not not a permission of sorts, but a kind of saying like looking to like, well, how is this? How do we understand it in that context first before having any application for other groups? But how do you how do you see that kind of uh, I guess, tightrope of walking, walking those kind of things. Yeah. I think that's such an important question because when you think about like the making of the King holiday, it was institutionalized as a national holiday in order to make the memory of civil rights and the memory of Martin Luther King, a sort of national domain, a national cultural resource. And on the one hand, that was you know, this huge, significant moment that really signaled that like a Black American had been central to the story of the country and who it was. But then on the other hand, it meant that it really did make Dr. King and the memory of civil rights really vulnerable to co-optation by different groups. And I mean, I think one of the big findings in the book is that it's not all these sort of, you know, evil intentions, malicious behind the scenes sort of discussions by right-wing groups that are co-opting King. It's also progressive groups that, with the best of intentions, pick up King's memory and claim themselves as the quote unquote new blacks Mm -hmm. in order to make these claims to the public that are going to resonate about how they also deserve civil rights. So we see this by all sorts of groups, right? Like John Scrantney calls this the minority rights revolution. And you see this with LGBTQ groups. You see it with Muslim rights activists, immigrant rights activists, you know, disability rights activists. It's just all across the board, all sorts of even progressive groups claim King's memory. They call themselves the new black people. And what happens when you call yourselves the new black people is that you are not, first of all, contending with the fact that there are black people within you, right? There are gay black people. There are immigrant black people. There are disabled black people. There are black people within each group. Then the second piece is exactly what you're saying, which is that they're also not confronting the internal sort of logics and anti-blackness that may exist within their movement and working in solidarity with Black communities. So one of the examples I loved in the book is I tell the story of the Immigrant Workers' Freedom Ride in 2003. Mm -hmm. And what was really powerful is that before the organizers even embarked on this freedom ride, where they were really working to claim the rights of immigrant workers, to really make these public statements about how immigrants are fighting the same types of battle that the Black civil rights activists fought Before they do any of this, they ask for permission. And so they go to Black civil rights leaders and they try to get their blessing. They tell them what they're doing. They sit down with them. They take the time. They don't just execute the strategy. And so there's a lot of self-reflection that's built into it. 
And of course, it's not, you know, the sort of perfect strategy. There's still a lot of contention that happens, you know, on the road. They stop at all sorts of civil rights stops and not everybody agrees with what they're doing. Some black folk are like, you know, these immigrants are coming. They're taking our jobs. They're not working in solidarity with us. They are anti-black when they move into our communities. There's a lot of racism. And so there, the complexity is always there, right? That complexity that we love to talk about. But I think the the more important piece is that there is that recognition that the memory of civil rights is rooted in the Black freedom struggle and the Black freedom struggle is not over. So that's the really critical division between those who claim the memory, they just take it as their own, they don't acknowledge its roots and the fact that it's still very much alive, and those that are continually using it as a form of internal reckoning. And so, you know, another example in the book is the Muslim rights movement who historically have been anti-Black, despite the fact that the history of Muslims in America is rooted in Black history. And so these are Muslim immigrants who are really committed to this kind of aspirational whiteness. They're really committed to this notion of themselves as you know upwardly mobile, as quote unquote, not like those other minorities. And for them, it's so important to distinguish themselves from Black people instead of working in community and solidarity with them. But of course, 9-11 happens and they have to really start thinking more seriously about the fact that they will never be white. They will never be seen as white. Mm -hmm. And no matter how hard they work, how much money they make, how well educated they are, they are going to be racialized as brown. And, you know, one of the, I think, tough pills to swallow, right, for that that community organizing within the Muslim rights organization is like they are thinking about what it means to work in solidarity with Black people and not just use them as a kind of performative piece. And there's a lot of internal reckoning where they have to think about the anti-Blackness among specifically a lot of the first-generation organizers. And you know, I've been thinking a lot about these examples recently with like the rise of Nikki Haley, for example, somebody who really likes to claim that model minority brownness whenever it's convenient for her, while very much you know, advancing policies that are anti-Black and anti-civil rights. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting how people <laughs> cherry pick what they want, what they like. And it's interesting. I mean, I think there is a kind of like maybe no no answer to it. And I think it's maybe distinct. I always find, I guess, instinctively for me, I like when people use their own history and their own culture and their own narratives of things. So, you know, you know, even, even, you know, on, on my side, right. You know, you know, I'm first generation, you know, um, you know, my dad's from Central America, you know, and, and for me, it's, you know, I mean, I was born here and stuff, but it's, you know, you know, there's, it's a strange thing. Like I wouldn't, I think there's a lot of, I mean, I, I like, you know, all parts of, you know, American history in terms of like that. Yes. Like I don't have to be black to like civil rights history. Like I, I understand that or, or, you know, for native Americans, it's like, yeah, I should learn all that. I should respect all that. I don't put one more than the other higher than the other. I think they're all important to study and to learn and to understand, but it would be strange for me. And it's just my experience of like, I wouldn't necessarily kind of tack on to like civil rights or, but I wouldn't even do that for, um, you know, like Chicano kind of movement or whatever in the, was it forties or fifties, whatever it was. Cause that's also not kind of specific, you know, Latin America is like super diverse. And, you know, so when people come here, like someone here from Cuba is certainly different from someone here from Nicaragua, right. And the different times and things like that. So 
I think it's interesting how people have these different histories. They have these different life stories. They have these different uh, waves of immigration that can be, I think you're right, that some people may want to use a lot of the spirit of civil rights and, and maybe some folks do appropriately, you know, kind of uh, connect with civil rights uh, leaders or people in certain uh, groups. And I think that's great. But I, I could also see the other side too, where people would be like, hey, uh, I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, <laughs> and so I think I think it's a very interesting kind of, it's an interesting discussion we have, uh, we'll continue to have as we become more and more multi-ethnic, you know, every every decade more and more. So it's be very, very interesting. Yes. I mean, absolutely. The question of, you know, who does the past belong to? And especially when it comes to a past that holds so much cultural power and political power. I mean, I think that's really, that's part of the answer. Like that's mm -hmm. the reason why people so unapologetically and without self-reflection will pick up the words of Dr. King and use them for causes that he would have been so opposed to. I mean, just the way that, like there was that great NPR report that showed that in this press conference about the threat of critical race theory, over half of the Republican speakers at the press conference used Dr. King's words to play up the threat of critical race theory yeah. as if he would be opposed to it. And it's right. like, it's so egregious. It's almost funny, but then it's also deeply scary, you know? And I'm like, mm -hmm. read the book because you see, how these strategies have such a long history and like really powerful consequences. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, so the last question here uh, is how do we listen better? How do we show more compassion to the experiences of others and, and really have a, a, a good multicultural coalition of folks that, you know, have this accurate, you know, idea of, of Dr. King and his legacy. Yeah, I think the the question of where do we go from here? How do we do better? That's the ultimate question. And I really wish that there were more easy answers. But I think one of the things that inspired me in researching and writing the book was just the power of the true legacies of the civil rights movement and of Dr. King, which drive home just how important it is that we continually practice and engage in a critical education and then especially a spiritual education. And I say that as somebody who is raised as an atheist, and so I was not raised with an active religious practice, but you know, in my older age, I've definitely come to realize the importance of spirituality and of connecting with something that's beyond yourself, um, you know, sort of rooting yourself in a, a sense of morality, of a commitment to other human beings. And so I think that is one of the more important and also, I think, more feasible pieces because it does happen at the individual level. So even for folks who are busy, they can find the time to read, to sit and think and reflect and try to remember what the larger purpose of being a human is, right? Like what I say in the, the conclusion is that especially after the experiences of the pandemic and realizing just how deeply we are social beings, what are we living for if not one another? Mm -hmm. So I think staying committed to that recognition, practicing it continually, and then also working locally. So being mm -hmm. locally mm -hmm. committed to amplifying the work of Black communities, supporting their work, but then also one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and it's something we talked about today, is 
the importance of getting your own people, right? So fetching them, you know, keeping them in line and having those hard conversations with them because it is not the work of black people to be educating the rest of us. And I think it's one of the more powerful and impactful things that we can do is talk to our own communities, really try to unpack a lot of the internal anti-blackness that's deeply embedded. And I think taken for granted in a lot of ways, um, because we sort of think about it as a cultural piece. So it's just how our culture is. And I think interrogating those things and, and really calling everyone to task, I think can be so important. And I think I always want to end with like the quote that I just love from Dr. King. And it is the quote that opens the book and it's about keeping our eyes open and the importance of not evading social reality. And so he says, the difference between a dreamer and a visionary is that a dreamer has his eyes closed and a visionary has his eyes open. Well, I mean, those are obviously very, very good words to, uh, to end on. I, I fully agree. The, uh, the book is called The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement through uh, Princeton University Press. It's out uh, everywhere in paperback now. Uh, so everyone should go pick it up. Uh, Haj, this was very, very, very lovely to, to talk with you, uh, having a really, really good conversation. I could definitely have gone three or four hours more. It was, it was so much there to, to, to get up, but I really, really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Thank you. <laughs>